Well, last week uh, I said in my introduction that the subject matter was somewhat sobering, to say the least, perhaps even a little bit frightening. I talked about people being burned alive on ancient griddles. Uh, that's, that's a pretty sobering topic as we considered the example of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and that Christ has not given his people the option of bowing the knee or making the, the slightest show of obeisance, even if outwardly, and even if during a time of persecution and, and state persecution in particular. We had as our, uh, our guest last week, uh, Gina Shiflett and her family. Uh, Gina's husband, Dave, um, pastors one of our sister churches down in Conroe. And at the time of my sermon last week, he was in a country uh, where there is persecution at times, and Christians are, uh, are, are sometimes arrested. And I went to her beforehand, and I said, Now, Gina, I'm talking about Baptists getting arrested and dying in prison, okay? But Dave's going to be fine. Don't even, don't worry about that. I don't want you to be scared from this. And um, So all that to say, uh, by contrast, today, Lord willing, perhaps in a somewhat refreshing manner, we have a topic that gives great joy and hope, um, and not only to sinners who perhaps fear that they themselves are beyond the reach of God's mercies, but also especially for those who are praying and seeking the salvation of sinners, and we ourselves might be tempted at times, perhaps they are beyond the reach of God's mercies, and this chapter gives us hope that there is no one beyond the reach of the Most High We see in this chapter God's great mercy and power towards a very, very lost sinner, and I would say to you, probably more lost, and someone who had received more mercies from God than whoever that person is in your mind that you're thinking of right now. And if God gives him mercy, that should encourage you as well. Now, to be sure, the main theme of this chapter very much like the main theme of the book of Daniel overall, is really the utter, incontestable supremacy of God and sovereignty over all things absolutely everywhere. We read this just a minute ago in verses 34 through 35. It says, His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say, what have you done? In light of this, this incontestable supremacy, as we we behold the fullness of it, we then reflect upon ourselves. We see the great wickedness in this chapter of the sin of of pride. When we who are accounted as nothing compared to God consider ourselves to be indeed a great something, a great big deal, we see the great wickedness of that. And we also see the warning that God takes this very seriously. Boasting is no idle sin in the Lord's eyes. And as he does in the case of Nebuchadnezzar, he will not let mortal flesh boast in his presence. And we will reflect upon this as well. And yet, even to this proud, arrogant king, Nebuchadnezzar, 
who has seen so many great things from God and yet has still not repented, even to him at the end of this chapter, God shows great mercy, and I believe he gives him salvation. Some are not convinced that Nebuchadnezzar is saved at all. Some kind of, there's, you kind of read the commentators, and they're like, I think he's saved here, because he gives these, he praises the God of Daniel. Others say, no, I, I think, you know, after Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I think it's actually in this chapter. My argument for that is that it's really only in this chapter that Nebuchadnezzar himself and his sins are directly uh, addressed by Daniel. And furthermore, he's humbled in the end. There's, there's one medieval writer, Nicholas of Lyra. He says, the scripture ends this story in his humiliation and confession of faith, which it does not usually do in them that afterward fall away and are lost. I think that's true. And so we have great encouragement from this text. No one, not even that person you're thinking of right now, not even you yourself, are beyond the reach of the Most High. Well, let's go ahead and dive into our text. And let me just say at the outset, I don't apologize, but I do give you uh, maybe a warning, we could say. The events of this chapter are so extraordinary, and quite frankly, there are a lot of little things that only happen in this chapter that need to be explained. Uh, There are a lot of things that need to be defended from critics as well, that this may feel a little bit more like a Sunday school than a sermon. I don't apologize for that because it's the Word of God. Not that Sunday school is bad, right? Um, But I'm just letting you know we will get to some application, okay? Okay. So track with me. There's a lot of little things, and I even hacked a lot of things out of here. There's just a lot of little things that we need to touch upon the way, okay? All right. Well, let's go ahead and dive into our text, beginning in verse 1. It says, Nebuchadnezzar, the king to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language that live in all the earth, may your peace abound. It has seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion is from generation to generation. Note quickly here that this chapter is more or less an epistle or a public declaration from King Nebuchadnezzar himself, recorded in Scripture, to all the people of his realm. Now, many scoff at the idea that this could actually be written by Nebuchadnezzar himself or that anything recorded in this chapter actually occurred. And even Calvin himself says that Daniel, quote, speaks in the person of the king. So, Daniel's kind of telling the narrative, but he takes a little creative license there. I'm not sure that I want to follow Calvin in that exactly. Critics point to the fact that the style of the chapter is more Hebrew than Babylonian, that the chapter is full of biblical allusions and even quotes from other passages of the Old Testament, and that is true. For example, the phrase that is repeated throughout the chapter, his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation, That's basically a quote from Psalm 145, verse 13, which is why we had that for our call to worship today. However, however, 
Others have responded to this, and I think this is very reasonable, that a Hebrew style of writing, and even quotes from Scripture, would be expected, given Daniel's place, not only in the narrative, but in the life of Nebuchadnezzar himself. E.J. Young, conservative Princeton scholar from the previous century, says, the language of the edict is due to the instruction and influence of Daniel himself. The edict is general, is genuine, but it was probably prepared under the influence of Daniel. That makes sense. If Nebuchadnezzar was truly humbled, as the account says he was, then surely he would look to Daniel to instruct him in the truth and even in the scriptures of the true God. Furthermore, as to the question of the historicity of this account, critics are quick to note that there is nothing at all of any sort mentioned like chapter 4 in any other Babylonian sources. How do we respond to this? Well, in terms of historical record, there's a lot about the early part of Nebuchadnezzar's life, but there's hardly anything at all about the latter part of his life in any sources whatsoever. And this most likely takes place towards the end of his life. So it's not necessarily uh, that the records were so full and they just didn't mention this. There's a whole lot of things towards the end of his life that happened and that he did that we don't know about. Furthermore, if you were a pagan Babylonian, why would you want to keep a record of a decree by one of your greatest kings praising the God of the Jews? You would not want to keep that for posterity. And so it's not surprising that there is no other historical account. That being said... While there is no exact parallel of this account found in any pagan records, there is an interesting account related to us by an ancient Greek historian that some believe kind of speaks of Nebuchadnezzar's madness here. It's t uh, it, it occurs towards the end of his life, and in this, Nebuchadnezzar is going up to his palace, which is interesting because in this chapter, it says in verse 29, 12 months later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. In the Greek account, he is ascending his palace. He becomes possessed by some kind of a god or a spirit. He utters a prophecy of the downfall of Babylon, and then he disappears, and you don't see him. Again, is that exactly Daniel 4? No, not quite, but some wonder if perhaps there is a kernel of truth, and it is a somewhat smoothed-over version of the biblical account especially with the idea of being possessed by a god or a spirit. When that happened in the ancient world, you were considered mad. And as we will see what happens to Nebuchadnezzar in this chapter, he definitely kind of fits the bill of someone who would be possessed by a god in the ancient world. Nevertheless, as far as I am concerned, there is nothing to keep us from believing that these events did actually take place and that this epistle was actually written by Nebuchadnezzar himself. In fact, the text goes out of its way to seek to establish this. Five times he says, I, Nebuchadnezzar. So, with respect to Calvin, I don't particularly think we have a good reason to follow him there. Okay? All right, continuing on in verse 4. He says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. I saw a dream. And it made me fearful. And these fantasies, as I lay on my bed and the visions in my mind, kept alarming me. 
So I gave orders to bring into my presence all the wise men of Babylon, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. And the magicians, the conjurers, the Chaldeans, and the diviners came in, and I related the dream to them, but they could not make its interpretation known to me. Now here people ask, and understandably, why does Nebuchadnezzar go back to the magicians and the Chaldeans first after their massive failure to not only interpret, but even tell him the dream in Daniel chapter 2? Some have suggested that maybe a lot of time has passed since Daniel chapter 2, and Nebuchadnezzar doesn't remember who Daniel is anymore. Not only do I find that unlikely, but it seems to go against the text itself. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar addresses him as the chief of the magicians. It seems that he, he knows very well who Daniel is. Calvin, however, has an interesting solution. We won't follow him in the first mention, but in this, I think we can definitely follow him. I think it's very satisfactory. His view is summarized that the king had not forgotten Daniel. Rather, his dream apparently caused him to realize that he would suffer humiliation, and probably this humiliation would be at the hand of Daniel's God. And so, if others can interpret the dream, he will go to them rather than to Daniel. Many of you know people who won't go to the doctor because they're afraid they're going to find something wrong, right? That's kind of probably what Calvin suggests is going on here, okay? Verse 8, but finally, Daniel came in before me, whose name is Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God, in, in whom is a spirit of the holy gods, and I related the dream to him. Now, just briefly, some argue that Nebuchadnezzar could not have been converted in this chapter, since right there, he speaks of Daniel being named after his God. He, he kind of says, Bel is my God, and he speaks of Daniel having the spirit of the holy gods in him. So, he, he's still a polytheist, they say. As to the first point, I would just say that when he speaks of Bel as his God, he means only in the sense that that was the name of his God, and that at the time when Daniel arrives in verse 8, Bel was still his God. He was not converted at that time. As to the second point, some have argued that Nebuchadnezzar does not say that Daniel has a spirit of the holy gods, but the holy God, referring to Daniel's God. Again, that doesn't mean that at the time he was a worshiper in the true sense of, Dan of Daniel's God, or that he believed that Daniel's God was the only God, but the Aramaic here, Elahin, which is plural, can be understood in a singular sense, very much like the Hebrew Elohim. And so they're saying that Nebuchadnezzar is acknowledging that Daniel's God is the holy God. Okay, that's what it's saying. Moving on, verse 9. Here Daniel tells the dream, and we're just going to read the whole dream and its interpretation. It says in verse 9, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, since I know that a spirit of the holy gods, or the holy God, is in you, and no mystery baffles you, tell me the visions of my dream which I have seen along with, it, with its interpretation. Now these were the visions in my mind as I lay on my bed. I was looking, and behold, there was a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew large and became strong, and its height reached to the sky, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. 
Its foliage was beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the sky dwelt in its branches, and all the living creatures fed themselves from it. I was looking in the visions of my mind as I lay on my bed, and behold, an angelic watcher, a holy one, descended from heaven. He shouted out and spoke as follows, Chop down the tree and cut off its branches. Strip off its foliage and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground, but with a band of iron and bronze around it and the new grass of the field, and let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, and let him share with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man, and let a beast's mind be given to him, and let seven periods of time pass over him. This sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers, and the decision is a command of the Holy One, in order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whom he wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream which I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen, this is the dream which I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now you, Belteshazzar, tell me its interpretation, inasmuch as none of the wise men of my kingdom is able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able spirit of the holy God is in you. Then Daniel, whose name is Belteshazzar, was appalled for a while as his thoughts alarmed him. The king responded and said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar replied, my lord, if only the dream applied to those who hate you and its interpretation to your adversaries. The tree that you saw, which became large and grew strong, whose height reached to the sky and was visible to all the earth, and whose foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which the beasts of the field dwelt, and in those branches the birds of the sky lodged. It is you, O king, for you have become great and grown strong, and your majesty has become great and reached to the sky, and your dominion to the end of the earth. In that the king saw an angelic watcher, a holy one, descending from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, yet leave the stump with its root in the ground, but with a band of iron and bronze around it in the new grass of the field, and let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, and let him share with the beasts of the field until seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my lord the king, that you be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place be with the beasts of the field, and you will be given grass to eat like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. And in that it was commanded to leave the stump with the roots of the tree, your kingdom will be assured to you after you recognize that it is heaven that rules. Therefore, O king, may my advice be pleasing to you. Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor in case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. All right, a lot to break down there. 
First, Nebuchadnezzar is likened to a great and glorious tree in whom all the world finds food and shade insofar as he is the king of the known world at that time. A tree is a common metaphor for humans throughout Scripture, but great and powerful men are often depicted as great and glorious trees. For example, in Ezekiel chapter 17, God speaks of the judgment coming upon Zedekiah, the king of Judah, for rebelling against Nebuchadnezzar. And yet, though this judgment will come, God speaks of Zedekiah and even of the house of David as a tree and ultimately speaks of Christ the Messiah in terms of a sprig that will come from the house of David. And interestingly, the words sound very similar to Nebuchadnezzar in this chapter. For example, just listen, it says, Ezekiel 17, verses 22 through 24. Thus says the Lord God, I will also take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar, the house of David, and set it out. I will pluck from the topmost of its young twigs a tender one, and I will plant it on a high and lofty mountain, Mount Zion. On the high mountain of Israel, I will plant it, that it may bring forth boughs and bear fruit and become a stately cedar. And birds of every kind will nest under it. They will nest in the shade of its branches. All the trees of the field will know that I am the Lord. I bring down the high tree, exalt the low tree, dry up the green tree, and make the dry tree flourish. I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will So the metaphor of a tree is very common for humans in general and for great men and even great kingdoms. Furthermore, I think the metaphor of a tree is also chosen because it fits very well with the judgment that comes upon Nebuchadnezzar. Just as a tree, though it be cut down, may grow back again, Nebuchadnezzar, we're told, after a period of seven times, will again be restored to his kingdom. And so a tree is fitting in that sense. Next, what are we to make of these figures called the watchers? The watchers, very interesting. The NASB adds the clarifying word angelic, which is correct. These are angels, but why are they called the watchers? Well, first, the term watcher is perhaps not the best because it sounds like angels are everywhere, watching us and what we do. The idea, though, is more uh, of someone who keeps watch or someone who is on guard, or, or we might say a night watchman. These angels are on guard. They stand at their post waiting to carry out the will of the Lord. This is the only time in Scripture that this word is used. We don't know exactly why it's used here. It could just be a term that Nebuchadnezzar as a Babylonian gave them, And certainly it is fitting, but they are just angels. This raises, however, another question, which is often asked. What are we to make of the fact that it says, this sentence is by decree of the angelic watchers, and the decision is a command of the holy ones? Wait a minute. I thought it was God's judgment upon Nebuchadnezzar. I thought God was the only one who can judge. Can angels give judgment? Well, it is God's judgment, In fact, in verse 24, it says, this is the decree of the Most High. And yet, all throughout Scripture, again and again, we see that angels carry out and execute 
the will, and often the judgments of the Lord. You see this especially in the book of Revelation. Whether they are blowing trumpets or pouring out bowls of wrath, the angels are really pouring out the wrath of the Most High upon the world. So insofar as they agree with God's judgment, and insofar as it has been given to them to execute, it is indeed their decree and judgment. Okay? All right. Next, perhaps the most uh, interesting part of this whole story, what actually happens to Nebuchadnezzar? Let's consider the judgment that comes upon him. Well, first he is described as a great and glorious tree that will be cut down, and everything that used to find shelter in it flees from it, and a band of iron and bronze is placed around it for a period of seven times. As far as the tree being cut down, this is the humbling of the great Nebuchadnezzar and all of his glory being stripped away, all of his courtiers fleeing from him. Perhaps you at one time had pull with the king. I know, a, I know the king. I know a great guy. That will no longer help you once his glory and his mind is taken away. The band of iron and bronze, I would say, represents his reason being taken away. It says in verse 16, Let his mind be changed from that of a man, and let a beast's mind be given to him. And it says at the end of verse 15, Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, and let him share with the beasts in the grass of the earth. He's going to be outdoors, most likely, eating with animals. He was probably kept somewhere, I kind of think. Uh, ancient interpreters argue, some say he, he like ran away into the mountains and then he came back seven years later. Um, others have suggested that the band of iron and bronze represents his being bound. So he doesn't harm anyone or even harm himself in such a state. As far as what actually happened to him, I don't precisely know. I think that God just kind of prohibited his rational faculties, his mind and his will, from being exercised by him so that he had nothing more than the sense of an animal. Many suggest that he had a mental illness that is called boanthropy. Boanthropy. I think bo means a cow or it means an animal in Greek, and anthropy is a man. So it's someone who thinks they are a cow or, or something like that. It's, it's a mental illness. The problem with that, I think, is that even for those who have boanthropy, they still have some rational function. Apparently, there is a story about a thousand years old of an Iranian prince who believed that he was a cow and he would go about mooing, um, and he, he told them, you can slaughter me and eat me because I'm a cow, okay? Um, that's still some degree of rational function. Cows don't ask people to slaughter them, right? They ask you to eat more chicken, right? No? Okay, that was so bad. Anyway, I don't even think he had that degree of rationality. I think he was just an animal. I don't think it's a, a mental illness per se. I think something more actually happened to him. As far as how long this went on, I don't totally know. It simply says in verse 24, that seven periods of time shall pass over him. The most common interpretation throughout history, and I think this makes sense, is that these are seven years, and that really fits the description uh, of him in this state. For example, it says in verse 33, 
His hair had grown like eagle feathers, and his nails like bird's claws. Well, the longest feathers on an eagle's wings are just short of two feet. So to grow hair about two feet long, that will definitely take years. So seven years seems fitting. This, however, raises another question, which critics of Daniel are quick to point out, which is, it would be very unlikely, they say, that he, who, he could have retained his throne and position as king if he were in such a state for so long a period of time. Certainly, there would have been a coup. This is what we hear oftentimes. Well, again, the point of the passage is that God can do whatever he wants. It's not hard for God to put a man in such a state while also protecting his kingdom at that time. And in fact, that's how God displays his great power in this chapter. You might think the greatest thing that God does to show his power is to humble Nebuchadnezzar's mind. No, no, no. The greatest thing he does is to put the guy he humbled back on the throne after he lost his mind for seven years. This is why it says uh, in verse 17, all this happened in order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of man and bestows it on whom he wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men. Yeah, the guy who was mooing and eating grass, that will be the king of Babylon again. That's kind of the point. So I don't think it's hard um, for God to do something like that. Furthermore, as Andrew Willett points out, perhaps Daniel himself ruled the kingdom in Nebuchadnezzar's place while he was like this. In fact, he makes a very good observation that everyone else in the king's court who heard the prophecy also heard the very end of it, that he would be restored at the end of that. So they knew this would not be a permanent thing. They just had to wait for the period of time to pass. Furthermore, there are many instances in history where something similar to this has happened to a king, and yet they eventually returned to the throne. For example, King George III, the king that we fought, the colonies fought in the War of Independence, he had many periods in his life when he was incapacitated and even sometimes when he was institutionalized. In fact, although I wouldn't recommend it for family watching, it is PG-13, uh, I wouldn't recommend it necessarily from a historical perspective. It's interesting. There's a movie called The Madness of King George, and it shows how he goes through this, and they still really don't know what happened to him, but he's institutionalized. There are some talks of, do we get a new king now? But eventually he comes back. He is able to rule. So it's by no means absurd to think that such a thing could happen to a king and that he could retain his crown. All right? All right, moving on. We are very close to some application. You've been, you've been trucking with me. Thank you. Thank you very much. Verse 28. All this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king. Twelve months later... He was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. The king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? It is here, brothers and sisters, that I would like us to consider and observe the great mercy of God in saving such a lost man. 
All of us here, perhaps as you are sitting, can think of persons in your life that while we all know, we confess that God can do whatever, He is the Most High, yet we often say things like this in in the doubt of our flesh. If God's going to save him, it's really going to have to be God that does it, right? Sometimes we say things like this. Sons or daughters, brothers or sisters, fathers, mothers, even grandparents, friends, people who are just so lost, and because they are so lost, they are so blind, and we despair. I think it's too late. I, I think it would have happened by now. I just don't think that person will ever come to Christ. I submit to you that Nebuchadnezzar was just such a person, and in fact, he was probably even a worse case than the one that you're thinking of. I think he was a very unlikely candidate for salvation at the time. He was a Gentile, not of the people of Abraham. And while God did indeed save many Gentiles in the Old Testament, yet it was one more thing that made it likely. He did not know the God of the Scriptures. He was steeped in paganism and polytheism and all sorts of blindness to the truth. Furthermore, he was very much a persecutor of God's people. Now, God did use him to bring judgment upon Judah for their sins, but that doesn't mean he was some sort of righteous judge. No, he was a ruthless, ruthless conqueror. Certainly, there were many righteous in Jerusalem that were slaughtered by the sword of Nebuchadnezzar's soldiers. Now, at the beginning of our series, we read that imprecatory passage in Psalm 137, verse 9. How blessed will be the one who seizes and dashes your little rocks, your little ones against the rocks. It's talking about Babylon. I said at the time, we would have perhaps a bit more compassion on the person who said that if we understand they had probably experienced their little ones being dashed against the rocks, and that would have been by the Babylonian soldiers with Nebuchadnezzar as their commander-in-chief. Furthermore, he's the man who not only burned, but destroyed and desecrated Yahweh's temple. God had shown him so many mercies. He had godly people in his life. You know, sometimes I pray for unbelieving family members that are maybe on the other side of the country. God, send them godly people in their life. Godly people who can be witnesses, who can point them to Christ that you might use. Nebuchadnezzar had all kinds of these and amazingly godly people. He had Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, if you could have those people in the lives of your family or friends, wouldn't you rejoice? Oh, what a godly influence. Yet it had no impact. He had seen great things from God, and that on a very personal level. God had given him visions and dreams. He had seen miraculous things. He had had the dream in chapter 2. He saw a man not only tell him the interpretation but the dream that he had had. He saw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego not burned with fire. He saw the angel of the Lord with his own eyes standing in the midst of the fire with them. And he still continues. In this chapter, he is basically personally evangelized by Daniel himself. 
Daniel calls on him directly to repent. In Sunday school, Jason mentioned the story of Ambrose denying the emperor of Rome communion, the Lord's table. Think of Daniel the prophet telling a supposedly pagan, right, uh, definitely a pagan king, break away now from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquity by showing mercy to the poor. And yet what do we read? It says 12 months later, the judgment came upon him, which means that even with that dream and a warning and a call to repentance by Daniel, he still did not repent, but rather continued in his proud ways. If you were a Jew praying for the salvation of Nebuchadnezzar, and when each of these things would come to pass, you might get excited This is it. I think the Lord is actually going to save Nebuchadnezzar. This is going to be it, only to see him again and again and again turn aside and continue in his hard-hearted ways, even with direct calls to repentance. It would be discouraging, to say the least, and it would be very hard to walk by faith that such a person would ever be saved. I have spoken to some of you about certain family members who are not believers. They might go through some sort of a calamity, a a medical thing, something, and we pray for them, not only for their health, but that God would use it to open their eyes. But when it doesn't happen, oh, how discouraging, and we can lose hope. Yet finally, the day of salvation does come to this very, very lost man. God greatly humbles him, Yet the day of salvation does indeed come. Let that be a great encouragement to you Christians. Because although that person in your life you're thinking of may have rejected God's many, many mercies practically for the entirety of their life, I doubt they've never been preached to by a prophet of God. I doubt they've ever seen the angel of the Lord with their own eyes and see three men not burned in the fire That's a great hard-heartedness to not repent when you see those things. And yet God turned his heart. And how much more can he do so for that person you're thinking of? While it still is today, there is hope. And I would say if you are such a sinner here today, there is still hope for you. As bad as your case may be, as many of God's mercies that you have rejected and squandered and not profited from, God will still give you mercy if you come today. This last week, I was reading through an old uh, book by one of my favorite Puritans. His name was Thomas Hooker. Uh, He's basically the, the founder of Connecticut in many ways. But he wrote a book called The Poor Doubting Christian Drawn to Christ. And it deals with all the reasons and objections that sinners come up with for why they cannot come to Christ. And one of them is because of all God's mercies shown to them in their past that after rejecting these, surely God does not still hold out mercy for me. Maybe for other sinners, but not for me. Hooker says, the poor soul says, My sins are worse than that, not only because they are so many, but because of the mercy and salvation that I have rejected, which have been offered to me from day to day. I have lived a life seeing God's mercies. 
I've been surrounded by godly Christians, godly witnesses. I know the truth. God has blessed me in so many ways, and yet I have rejected him my whole life. God will surely not now hold out mercy to me. Hooker responds, this cannot hurt thee, provided you can see those evil of yours. For though you have cast away the kindness of the Lord, yet the Lord will not cast you away if you will come and seek him earnestly again and again. If this could have hindered, none should ever have received mercy. But there is not time too late if a man has a heart to return. There is no limitation of the riches of God's free grace. Therefore Christ saith, I stand at the door and knock. And though he cry out till he be hoarse, stand till he be weary, yet he still stands. And if any adulterous or deceitful wretch open, the Lord will come in and comfort and sup with him. Be encouraged, doubting sinner. It is never too late. You can never receive so many mercies of God that he withdraws his hand. No, he keeps putting it to you. The day is now. Take it. No longer reject it. It's interesting that God did not convert the king right away. But that does not mean that Daniel's witness to him all the time was not part of the means that God used to convert him. It was. So also for you, Christian, if you be praying for someone, you don't see it bearing fruit. It does not mean it will not one day bear fruit, though it be late in coming. Keep praying. Keep witnessing. Keep seeking them, because it is always hope with God the Most High. Also, a word... For you Christians who think, well, I'm the biggest bum of all because I sin after my conversion. I fall after salvation had come. Yes, indeed, Nebuchadnezzar's a great sinner because he did that, though he saw so many mercies. I went through all that. I received pardon and I still continue to sin. I am even worse than him. It is true that sin in a saint is more sinful than sin in an unbeliever. And yet if God shows mercy to unbelievers in bringing them to salvation, how much more will he continue to show great mercy to those he has already saved and made his own children? Be encouraged. This is a God of big, big mercy. You can't uh, run out of it. All right, picking up in verse 28. It says, all this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king. Twelve months later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. The king reflected and said, is, is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal palace by, my might, by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? Nebuchadnezzar was indeed a great builder. And back then, when a new building was made... They would commission what's called a, a commemorative cylinder. It was a cylinder, and it would be made of clay. They would write in it in cuneiform, which is basically with a, a reed, kind of looks like a bunch of chicken's feet all over it. They would write in it, and then they would hide it in the wall of the building. And it would have something to the effect of the history and who made it, and that's what they would do to dedicate it. And we have a lot of these from Nebuchadnezzar. 
in that area. He was indeed a great builder. For example, the most famous cylinder is called the East India House Inscription. You can hear the great vanity of Nebuchadnezzar. He says, I am Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the exalted prince, the favorite god of Marduk, the beloved of the god Nabu, the arbiter, the the possessor of wisdom, who reverences their lordship, the untiring governor who is constantly anxious for the maintenance of the shrines of Babylon and Borsippa. By thy command, merciful Marduk, may the temple I have built endure for all time, and may I be satisfied with its splendor. There have been many cylinders like that found. He was a great builder. In fact, one of the wonders of the ancient world, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, was probably built by Nebuchadnezzar. The term hanging is probably more the idea of overhanging, and it probably speaks of a large temple with like a tiered garden that kind of goes up and the the trees overhang. And it was meant to be uh, like a mountain retreat. Uh, We're we're, we're told that he, he married a woman from the mountains of Iran, of Elam or something like that, and she missed her homeland. So he made this to basically recreate a wooded mountain for her with animals, a great garden. And so he was a great builder. Verse 31 says, While the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you and you will be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle, and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. Immediately, the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled, and he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle feathers and his nails like bird's claws. But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, But he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? At that time, my reason returned to me and my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom. And my counsels and my nobles began seeking me out. So I was reestablished in my sovereignty and surpassing greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are true and his ways just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. He is able to humble those who walk in pride. As I said, we see here the utter, the absolute, incontestable supremacy of God and power over all things. And by contrast, all the inhabitants of the earth, it says, are accounted as nothing compared to God. 
Nebuchadnezzar, his problem was that he encountered himself to be a great something. And he thought all of his works were for his own majesty. He says in verse 30, these, these words kind of haunt me because I, I just see these things coming up in my own heart sometimes. He says, Is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? The focus is all on him. Me, me, me. The NASB translates it as, which I myself have built. And that's a good translation. In Aramaic, as in other languages that are highly conjugated, you don't have to add the pronoun to the subject or to the verb. It often is implied, but when you do add it, you are really adding emphasis to the subject. That's what we see here. The pronoun is added. It's basically which I, in italics, have have built. Furthermore, he has not built it for the glory and the majesty of God, but he built a royal residence by the might of his power for the glory of his majesty. He thinks he's a great something rather than accounting himself as nothing compared to the true God. And yet, brothers and sisters, while we should indeed rebuke Nebuchadnezzar here, let us not be deaf to our own hearts when they utter such things. We may not have the fleshly uh, accomplishments of Nebuchadnezzar. I doubt any of us here will ever have such accomplishments. We may have very meager accomplishments, but do not be deceived. That will not stop your heart from thinking, oh, this molehill is indeed a great mountain. I like to joke with people, there's nothing more pathetic than Reformed Baptist famous, okay? You think to yourself, wow, look at me. Did you hear my sermons? Whoa. Yeah, you're Reformed Baptist famous. That's like, the, that's like okay, right? Is not this great blank, which I have built by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? Oh, brothers and sisters, if you think that does not creep up in your heart every single week, you are deceived. It may be anything. It may even be over your own humility. Oh, the heart is so deceitful. Let us repent. Let us humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. Let us praise, exalt, and honor the King of heaven, as Nebuchadnezzar says, for all his works are true and his ways are just. And let us not forget, as Nebuchadnezzar found out, God is able to humble those who walk in pride. God is able to humble you. And if you are a child of God and he loves you, he will in due time humble you. You walk in pride. Humble yourselves, or he will do it for you. And yet, yet be encouraged that though he humbled Nebuchadnezzar for his great vanity, the story did not end there. Could have. It could have ended there with Nebuchadnezzar just being in that sort of a state, and it would have been a byword as to the great power of God, and and it would be a reminder of why we all need to repent of vanity, but God didn't stop there. God displayed his mercy and showing kindness and granting repentance to such a vile boaster. And if you have such vileness in your heart, repent 
and the Lord will grant you mercy as well. Lastly, in closing, be encouraged that no one is beyond the reach of the Most High. No hard, no heart is too hard. No will is too stiff. I love how it says, no one can ward off his hand. If God's hand moved to fetch a sinner, his hand cannot be batted off. He will succeed in grabbing that sinner, though that sinner complain and cry and kick and scream. When I was saved, I remember a few days afterwards, I raised my fist to God and I said, you can't do this to people. Basically, as his hand was around me and he's like, I can and I did and I will continue to do so. No one can ward off his hand. Be encouraged by that. If you are an unbeliever here today, today is the day of repentance. God has shown you so many mercies, even now in hearing this example of this salvation coming to such a great sinner. Will you repent and turn to him? Don't say, well, I'll just continue on my way and then One day, after I've sown my oats, then God will humble me, and and then I'll be a Christian. First of all, that's called learning the hard way. As the country song says, if you're going to be dumb, you got to be tough. I imagine if Nebuchadnezzar could have done it another way, he would have taken the easy route, as good as a result as it came out with in the end. I would encourage you to not make God bring such means upon you. Furthermore, You don't know if God will do what he did for Nebuchadnezzar for you. He may just let you continue on in your sin until you die. The day of repentance is now. If you are a sinner here, the Bible calls you a tree as well. Did you know that? John the Baptist said, Bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father, for I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Do not say my parents are believers. Do not say I have attended church thousands of times. If God wants to make uh, children from Christians, he could do so with stones. And if he needs people to fill the pews, he could do so with stones. Instead, he says, the axe is already laid at the root Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The idea of the axe being laid at the root is what you do right before you're about to swing the axe back. You put it right where you're going to hit. It's right there. God is about to bring it up and bring it down, and those which do not bear fruit will be cast into the fire. God's axe is laid at your root today. Will you wait and before that axe fall, and you will receive mercy. Come to the Lord today, and you will find abundant forgiveness. Let's pray. Oh God, how vain we are. Oh Lord, we don't even realize the depths of our vanity. Father, we are so quick to boast over everything we have received from you. Even the repentance and humility that you have worked into our heart by your spirit. 
Oh, in our flesh we turn and boast to these things. Truly, Lord, our only hope is to cast ourselves upon you for mercy. We thank you, Lord, that you have sent your Son to bear sin on the cross, to bear the sin of vanity, to bear the sin of pride and presumption and boasting. All these were borne by Christ. And God, I pray for any here who have not yet humbled themselves, though they've received years of your mercies. Father, would today be the day that you grant repentance in them? I pray for those Christians here, Lord, who are discouraged as they've waited for years. Perhaps many times when their hopes, their hopes are kindled that perhaps through some event, this or that person might finally come to faith only to see it not happen again and again and again. Oh, Lord, would you grant them perseverance? Grant them perseverance and hope. No one is beyond the reach of the Most High. We thank you for this, Lord, in the name of Christ.